Adams, and I bring you greetings from Simi Valley. Of course, uh, as you know, many of you, my wife and I, uh, earlier this year, uh, went out to Simi Valley, and we started a church out there. So we now have a, a church planting that's up and running in Simi Valley, and I know many of them are here with us today. It's always great to come back. Uh, and so from time to time, I get to come back, and, and as our church, we get to come back to fellowship with you, and we are always grateful to be back with the mothership, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, and it's always a pleasure for me to be able to preach to you. We are uh, in a series. In fact, we're ending the series entitled The Gift. And uh, today we're going to be ending not only the series, but the year 2015. It is now coming to a close. We are now in 2016. If you grew up when I did and you loved watching Twilight Zone at 3.30 in the afternoon or sometimes it came on at midnight, you always get a kick out of it when you watch the reruns because they were always talking about like 1985. That was the faraway future. We're way beyond that. We're all the way in 2016. I mean, we should be on other planets by now based on, on that as a reference. But, you know, we're not. It's a little bit harder than we thought it would be to go places like that. You know, uh, before I uh, get into the, the message, I just was thinking about the year, and I'm sure uh, for you, like it was for me, 2016 had its, its highs and its lows. I mean, you know, you just can't get away from that as a human and a person alive today. It's, uh, there's always just highs and lows, and I'm sure you've had a few of those in your life this, uh, this past year. But I got to thinking about uh, a, a show I was watching, uh, uh, the Miss Universe Contest. How many here by a show of hands saw the Miss Universe Contest? No greater uh, example of the highs and lows of 2015 than the Miss Universe contest. Now, now again, by a show of hands, who stayed and watched Miss Columbia announced as the winner? Yes, we, we saw that. Now, how many of you, like me, turned off the TV and went to bed after that and failed to miss the dramatic ending? Well, if you did, what happened was that Steve Harvey, who, bless his soul, I feel so bad for the guy, he's a decent host, but he accidentally named the wrong winner on the card at the end of the show. And so he announced Miss Columbia when, in fact, Miss Philippines won the Miss Universe contest. And so... There was a whole uh, controversy and hoopla, and it was very awkward and uncomfortable. The poor, the poor Miss Columbia didn't know what was going on, and there she is smiling, doing her walk with her crown. And they had to interrupt all that with the music and the ticker tape coming down, and they had to announce that she was second place. And they literally, the host had to come out, the female host, and take the crown off of her head and put it on Miss Philippines' head. And neither of them knew what to do. I mean, it was, it was uh, quite bedlam. You know, it got me uh, thinking, though, about another, uh, about a movie I saw a few years ago. Maybe some of you have seen it, show of hands. Who's seen the movie Miss Congeniality? I think it's a hilarious movie. It's a comedy with Sandra Bullock, and she's a, a FBI agent, a hard-nosed FBI agent who has to go undercover at a beauty pageant to find the bad guy. And uh, throughout the movie, she's always mocking and making fun of the, of the, the girls in the contest because they're ditzy or they're dingy or, or whatever. And uh, it's really, it really is a funny movie. But, but, you know, after watching that movie, you, you know, you realize that the movie, although it 
it has some elements of truth to it. You know, there are beauty contests, there are beauty pageants, there are ditzy people in the world, things like that happen. You know, after watching the movie, you kind of know it's, it, oh, that's just silly. You know, all the craziness that went on in the, in the show. And, and, and then you see what happened at the Miss Universe contest and you think, maybe it's not all that far off from the truth after all. I mean, crazy things happen from time to time. Today, the title of my message is The Gift of the Shepherds. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to say a prayer before we read. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning, and thank you for a chance to come to you and let you speak to us through your word. And I pray, God, that that is exactly what happens, that you speak to every one of us through your word today, through the message that you've put out there for me to communicate to the audience and to myself. I love you, God, and we, we pray that we will draw closer to you as we end 20. 15 and head into 2016. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 3 first. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their hometown to register. Now, Luke, who wrote this gospel, was a Christian. He did not know Jesus Christ personally. He was actually converted much later, long after Jesus had died, and uh, and his followers were spreading the gospel. Luke became a friend of the Apostle Paul, a famous Christian who spread Christianity all over the Roman Empire, and he traveled with, with, with Paul through many of his journeys. And along the way, Luke got to meet lots of really great people, including many of the people who knew Jesus personally. And so Luke decided to write a gospel in which he would uh, uh, interview people and get their firsthand accounts of their experiences of Jesus Christ. He opens up this part of his gospel in in chapter 2 with the phrase, in those days. Now, he did not say, once upon a time. Because what Luke is telling us and what he tells us throughout his gospel is not a fable, a myth, or a legend. Luke is telling us real historical facts. You know, the movie Miss Congeniality, it's a comedy, but in some ways we could look at it now and consider it what's called historical fiction. What that means is that the movie itself is based in reality, but the story is completely made up. And there are people out there that think of the Gospels and the Bible in much the same way, that it's got some basis in history, but it's a made-up mythological story. Luke is adamant that that is not the case. He does not say once upon a time. He says in those days. There was another movie, actually it was a miniseries, and I'm sure many of the guys have seen it. it. came out several years ago. It was called Band of Brothers. Incredibly well done miniseries. And it tells the story of a specific unit, I think it was Easy Company, the, of the 101st Airborne, during their, their experiences through World War II. And, and uh, the director and the, 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 the producers and the, the creators of the, of the miniseries went to great lengths to make it incredibly realistic. The, the, the uniforms, the combat scenes, the equipment, I mean, everything down to the smallest detail, the patches and the, the badges, etc. They went to great lengths to make it as realistic as possible. 
But what happens at the end of every episode of the Band of Brothers is when, when, the, when the show was over, then they had the actual combatants, the actual men, those who are still living, tell their story about the engagements. And so Band of Brothers goes beyond historical fiction and really does communicate historical truth. And it's backed up by the personal testimony of the actual people who experienced the events. That is much, that is more akin to what Luke did. That's very similar. Luke actually retells us a story based on firsthand eyewitness accounts. And so Luke is historical truth. It is not historical fiction. Now, some might say, well, but Luke was clever. He wanted to look believable, and that's why he goes to great lengths and gives us so much detail in his account. That would be true with the exception of there were eyewitnesses alive at the time Luke wrote his gospel. And so when you combine Luke's gospel with eyewitness testimony, now you have a very valid document. It's a very authentic and real document. Because if Luke had made it up, somebody would have come out of the woodwork and said, I was there and it didn't happen that way. But that's not what happened. Just like the movie of Band of Brothers, they, they show a, an incident from these guys' experiences, and at the end, those guys comment on the incident and verify the authenticity of it. No one can come out of the woodwork and say, well, I was there, and, and it didn't happen that way because the people that were there are saying it happened that way. Miscongeniality is a whole different story. There's a lot of, his, there's a lot of context that's factual, but the actual story, nobody was there because it didn't happen. It's made up. The characters are fictional and et cetera, but not in the gospel of Luke or the rest of the Bible for that matter. Caesar Augustus was a real historical figure. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar. He was adopted by Julius Caesar and became ruler of the Roman Empire in 31 BC. He was given the title Augustus, which means exalted, in 27 BC. He was largely responsible for what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He kept the peace in the Roman Empire. Quinius really was a governor of Syria, and he was also partially over the province of Judea, and he, and, he, and he governed until about 12 AD. There really was a census during the time of Jesus's birth, and it really did cause people to have to travel to their hometowns to be registered for the census. Jesus' birth and the events that Luke is communicating about his birth and then about his life are real historical events. They really did happen. Why am I belaboring this point? Why am I boring you to death, repeating myself over and over and over on this point? The answer is this. If you don't believe Luke, you won't trust Luke. And so it is with God. If we don't believe what God communicates to us through real live people, people who really did live and exist and experience these events, if we don't believe God's message through them, 
then we will not trust what God tells us through them. It's vitally important that we as believers, that's what we call ourselves, are also people who are trusters. We trust that what we've been told, what's been revealed to us through Scripture, is the truth. Then and only then does it change our lives. Then then and only then does it make a difference to us. You know, I've known my wife, I think it's 21 years now we've been married. I've known her longer, but we didn't marry at first sight. I wanted to, but we didn't. And you know, she was born in Westchester, grew up, went to St. Bernard's High School. She says St. Bernard's, but it's Bernard's. You know, went to CSUN and et cetera, right? I only know that because she's told me that. But I happen to believe her, so I trust that it's true. Now, there are witnesses. I can talk to her parents, but they could be giving me a story too. There are some documents. I'm sure there's a birth certificate somewhere, but who knows, right? I mean, anything can be made up at some point. But, you know, really, are we going to go that far? I mean, at some point, I've got to believe her and her story in order to trust her and have the marriage that we have, and it's a good one. It's much like that with God and the, and the Bible or Luke and his gospel. You've got to believe him, and there's enough evidence here. He's gone to great lengths to prove it, interviews, testimonies, etc., in order to trust it. In 2016, as we are looking forward, I hope that we can become the kind of people who grow in our belief. Wherever you may be at, I hope you go a step further and you believe a little bit more than you do today. Because if you do, I know that that will translate into trust. And if you trust God a little bit more in 2016 than you did in 2015, well, then you're going in the right direction. That's really what we want and what I want for my life and what I want and and what God wants for me is to just keep believing a little more and keep trusting a little more. Verses 4 through 7. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child while they were there. The time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. You know, the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem is about 80 miles. And uh, it's no easy uh, undertaking, especially in the time of Mary and Joseph. It cost a lot. It took time. It took money. Uh, It wasn't a a comfortable journey. They had to walk or, or if they had a camel or something else, they had to they, they had to, you know, walk or ride part of the way. And, and, and you can imagine that this wasn't the easiest journey for Mary either. She was probably somewhere around the middle of her pregnancy. Now, I don't know many married women who would love to go walking for 80 miles <laughs> through rough terrain in the middle of their pregnancy. So, so this wasn't an easy thing to be done. And the question that this raises is, why did Mary go at all? Because from what we know of history, it was probable that she didn't need to go. 
it just was really a, a census. They usually counted the heads of the household. That would have been Joseph. And so he could have went on his own, but he decided to take Mary. And you think, well, what an insensitive snob. Why would he do that to his wife? Drag her along. So a lot of people have wondered this. We don't know for sure, but, but, but I think Luke gives us a little hint here. He tells us that she was pregnant, and here's the hint. They were pledged to be married. That means they weren't married, but she was pregnant. Now, in our day and age, what's the big deal, right? I mean, that happens all the time. But in that time, there was a big deal. And there was a good chance that Mary, being left back in Nazareth, would have been subjected to some humiliation, maybe even some public disgrace, as she began to show more and more that she was pregnant. And everybody in the place knew she wasn't married. I mean, even Joseph had to consider divorcing her or, or ending the engagement because she had gotten pregnant. It wasn't him. And then an angel had to tell him, no, 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 this is something miraculous and it's good to stay with her. And so he opted to do that. But, but he certainly prob- probably didn't want to leave, leave her behind. Did I just say certainly probably? It was certainly probable. I am so trustworthy. So, so he certainly, well, he probably... Now I'm stuck. He probably didn't want to leave her behind. That's a good guess. Because he didn't want to leave her uh, there to be subjected to public disgrace. And so now we go, oh, Joseph, what a nice guy, right? He's trying to protect Mary. Whatever the reason, he takes her. And at the end of the day, that results in Jesus being born in the town of Bethlehem. There was no room in the town because everybody had to go there for the census, and so the place was crowded. The only place they could find was a stable and a, and a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. And, and so she gave birth to Jesus right there in the manger and put him in the trough as a, as a bassinet uh, uh, for baby Jesus. You know, Micah was a prophet. He lived century before, uh, centuries before uh, Joseph and Mary ever were uh, alive. And he made a prophecy, and he said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You know, I I thought a lot about that, and it dawned on me that Joseph, I highly doubt, thought or planned to be engaged to a pregnant woman. That probably wasn't in his plan, and certainly Mary didn't plan on journeying 80 difficult miles in the middle of her pregnancy. And, and, I, I, and I, I got to assume that Caesar and Quinius had no intention by issuing a decree of, 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 of having Joseph go from Beth, uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem where Jesus would ultimately be born. None of that was anybody's plan, but it was God's plan. God had seen this many centuries before, before even the creation of the earth. God knew and so the circumstances, however difficult or embarrassing or, or, or even seemingly random that happened to Joseph and Mary, were all part of a plan. It wasn't their plan, but it was God's plan. I'm sure a lot of things happened to you in 2015, and they weren't part of your plan. Good or bad. Some of them might have been embarrassing. 
Some of them might have been difficult. Some of them just must have seemed completely random and nonsensical. But God has a plan. And God has the ability, if we trust him, to use those things, those ups and those downs that occur in our life to bring about his outcome. The issue is, are we paying attention? Do we connect the dots? Are we able to see God doing that? Before I married Lynette, some 21 years ago, I wanted to get married and I was ready to get married. I told you I wanted to marry her when I first met her. I was ready for two years. And I needed to get a little bit better job. I, I decided I want a little bit better job. And that year I happened to make a, 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 a decision that every day I would end my day by thanking God for whatever happened that day. And I was doing that very consistently throughout the year. Every night I'd say a prayer and just kind of think through what happened, and I would just thank God for it. Well, I was getting close to wanting to, to marry Lynette, and I was trying to find a, a different job. I was in a job that was okay, but I wanted to get a little bit better job. I wanted to provide. And I was at work one day, and I broke my leg working. And then I got laid off. And I went to bed that night and went, thanks, God for breaking my leg, and then a couple days later, you know, thanks for getting me laid off. I don't know exactly what the purpose of all this is, but I said I would thank you for everything, so I said thank you. And lo and behold, uh, because I had broken my leg, I got workers' comp. So I had a regular paycheck even after I got laid off while my leg was recovering. And that gave me the opportunity to not suffer any significant financial loss and full-time opportunity to look for another job. It's a great way to transition jobs. (laughs) Now, I don't recommend it. I'm not asking you to break your leg at work or any other body part. That would be a crime. I didn't do it on purpose. I worked with kids, disabled kids, and one of them took off running, you know, kind of dangerous, and I chased after him, and I jumped down a flight of stairs and broke my leg. I didn't do it on purpose. So don't do it on purpose. That would be a crime. God doesn't bless crimes. He can turn them into good things after the fact, but he doesn't bless them. So don't don't go there. People think like that, and it's not good. My point is this. When I look back, I think, thank you, God. I mean, you totally hooked me up. I mean, yeah, I had to break my leg, but no big deal. You hooked me up. You allowed me to transition from one job to another, a better job, And then eventually asked Lynette to be my wife. We even have a picture of me proposing and my legs in a cast. (laughs) But what a blessing that turned out to be. What a great plan God had that I never would have foreseen. And honestly, had I not been praying about it every night, I never would have looked, I never would have put two and two together. I think God has been doing a lot of things in every one of our lives, even in 2015. And maybe you haven't put two and two together because you've not been looking at God and asking God to help you understand what he's been doing. Maybe in 2016, that's something you can do. Maybe you could consider going to bed at night, just thanking God in 2016 for whatever happens that day. Because there's something about that that will get you looking to God and not to your circumstances. Not to what's hard, what's difficult, embarrassing, or even random. Now you're looking at God and and, and you're actually trying to see God work. 
in your life. I don't know if Joseph, I doubt he did, but I don't know if he figured out, oh, there's a census, she's pregnant, great. Micah 5, 2 said Jesus is gonna be born in Bethlehem. I doubt Joseph made that connection, but after the fact, he probably did. And if he didn't, Jesus probably told him. And then Joseph's faith grew and he was more impressed with God. Well, the same can happen to you and I. We can be more impressed with God. Our belief and our trust in God can grow if we look at what God is doing in our life, if we connect the dots. Because lo and behold, even through our good stuff and even through our rotten stuff, God is bringing about good things. So don't let them go to waste by not thinking about them, by not paying attention to them, by not thanking God for what happens in our lives. Verse 8, we'll read on here, verse 8 through 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So Bethlehem is just a few miles away uh, from Jerusalem. And uh, outside the area of uh, of Jerusalem is where the shepherds, uh, there were a lot of shepherds and they, they were kind of in the outskirts of the city and the fields and the surrounding areas. All around that area, there were a lot of shepherds. A lot of the shepherds, just as a side point, uh, probably uh, tended flocks for the temple. And many of those sheep that they tended were probably going to be used as sacrifices at the temple. I'm sure there were also private flocks kept out there too. But, but it's a good probability that, that the shepherds out there, were, many of them were tending flocks for sheep that would later be used as sacrifices at the temple. And uh, so here they are, they're out in the, in the outskirts, and, and suddenly an angel of the Lord appears, and the glory of the Lord shone all about them. Now, the indication there from the language is that, that not only was there an angel, but there was this amazing light. Now, it, from what we can tell, it didn't seem to light up all of the shepherds. It didn't light up the entire area around Jerusalem, but it appeared to some of them out there in the dark, in the, in the outskirts, in the, in the farmland, the grazing lands, pasture lands outside of Jerusalem. When I was a kid, my dad was a printer, and he owned a, a shop down in Hollywood, and, and uh, he did uh, what's called offset printing. This is before laser printing and home copiers and fax machines and all that. And offset printing, these big giant machines, and they had these rollers, and on the rollers they had these aluminum plates, and on the aluminum plates was etched an image. And when the roller spun, the ink dripped down, and it would fill in the etching. And then as the paper would go through, it would copy the image onto the paper. That's how offset printing works. And a part of that process is you have to have those plates. You have to make the plates. And so my dad, in the back of his shop, had a gigantic dark room 
with a gigantic camera. Now, when I say gigantic camera, I mean a big camera. It was big. I want you to picture in your mind's eye those old school cameras where they, you know how they like fold it out? They would come out and there'd be baffles and they'd open up like this. And, and, you know, and they would take a picture. In the old days, they'd have their head under the hood and the box and the thing, and he'd take the thing off and put it back on. That's what it looked like. So I want you to picture that. But picture it about four feet high and about three feet wide and about six feet long. It was a big camera. And outside the camera, there were these iron rails that went out. And at the end of the rails, there was a glass case. And in the glass case, you would put an image, a picture or text or whatever it is that you wanted to burn onto the plate. And that image would sit out there and you would adjust it for focus. And once it got in focus, you'd go into the dark room and you'd turn on the vacuum pump and it would go, the whole shop would fill up with this loud noise. And then you'd open the back of the camera and you'd take the photographic film, you'd put it on the, on the back and it would suck it down. That's what the vacuum pump did. You'd center it and it'd suck it down. Then you'd close it. And then you'd push the button. And there were these two giant arc lights I don't know if you've ever seen an arc light. Have you ever seen an arc welder or anybody welding? You know how there's that really brilliant light right there at the point of the welding? Well, the, imagine them like this big. These big arc lights with these two electrodes, and it would shoot electricity. I think they were sodium. The element was sodium. And that electricity would zip through, and it would create this massively bright light, brilliant light. It would light up the whole shop. And it was like lightning, but it stayed on the whole time. So you'd be in the shop and you hear, and then these lights would come out of the whole place. It was awesome. And my dad would be like, don't look at the light, because it would burn your eyes. You couldn't look at the light. And what that would do is that would expose onto the photographic paper, create a negative, and then that would be used to etch the image onto the plate for the printing process. Now, I don't know if the shepherds were out there and all of a sudden they heard, and then these big lights pop. I don't know how it was. I'm sure it was much more magnificent. It was much greater than that. But let me just say, it was surprising. It shocked the shepherds. They were not prepared for this. And, and so, and boom, this light, and there's angels right there. And he goes, don't be afraid. God has a great sense of humor, right? You can imagine the shepherds just, just hit the ground, like, what's going on? You know, don't be afraid. They're, they're peeking up, you know. He goes, I bring you good news. I bring you gospel. The word there is gospel, good news. A Savior's been born in the city of Bethlehem. Now let's talk about the shepherds for a minute. Because after all, my series is the gift of the shepherds. Or my title. Shepherds were not considered good people. If you're a shepherd, I apologize. I, I'm not saying that you're a bad person. And I don't know what they're considered today. I don't really interact with many shepherds. But in those days, they were kind of untrustworthy, unreliable. I remember Caesar Lopez, our, our minister here in the valley, when he came off the mission field from Cambodia. And uh, we were joking because, uh, you know, we were talking about like a lost and found at church. And Caesar said, oh, in Cambodia, we don't have a lost and found. It's a lost and I found. <laughs> and that's kind of like the shepherds. They were a bit light fingered. And that's what they were known as. They were just people of ill repute, bad reputation. They were ceremonially unclean. They didn't often worship with the, with the rest of the Jewish community. That's why they were in the outskirts of the city. They just weren't that kind of people. They were... They were untrustworthy, unreliable, 
didn't have a great reputation. This is not my first choice. If I was God of a group of people that I would announce the birth of the Savior to. I mean, it's really kind of funny when you think about it. Here he is out in the, you know, the angel out in the wilderness there with this bright light appears to the most untrustworthy, unreliable, unclean people in the place. They're the first people that got told Jesus was born. God just doesn't do things the way we think he should do things. It never happens the way I think it should go. That's why I got to trust him. Because I don't know what God's going to do to you in 2016. I don't know what he's going to do to me, but he's certainly going to do things that I don't approve of. And you're probably not going to approve of some of them either. And you're going to go to bed, and if you take the challenge and pray to God every night and say, God, thank you for what you did, you're going to have to struggle. Thank you, God, for what you just did today. I don't understand why you did that. It teaches us to trust. I like how C.S. Lewis put it, God is not a tame God. We don't worship a tame God. He's unpredictable. He does things that we don't approve of, that we don't think are right, that push us beyond what our comfort zone really is. And so the angels, uh, you know, the angel says to the shepherds, you know, it's in, you know, you'd find the Savior in Bethlehem. He'd be in a manger, very specific direction to the shepherds. And then all of a sudden, a whole host of angels and heavenly beings appear in the sky. And the word host can be translated army. So this wasn't a little, this was a lot all at once. And starts praising God and they sing peace to those on whom his favor rests. There was a man named Ep- Epictetus, Ep- Epictetus. He was a first century Roman. He was not a believer in Jesus Christ. I think he was a philosopher. And he wrote this. In, in the first century of Rome. And I want you to listen to what he wrote. While the emperor may give peace, talking about Caesar Augustus, from war on land and sea, that's the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which men yearn. Like today... People in the first century, even the pagans, were looking for something better than what the world had to offer. Like today, people in the first century looked in all the wrong places. I don't know what their version of wine, women, and song was or sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I don't know what they called it, but it was the search for something better, but it was always looking in the wrong places. I'm sure the shepherds felt that urge for something better. It's not being, it's not easy being an outcast. It's not easy having a bad reputation or having baggage. And I'm sure that the shepherds were looking for something better. And maybe they were trying to find it in their their acquiring of other people's possessions or in their search for money or their search for relationships or whatever it was that they were searching for. 
But it's the same today. We're still out there looking for things to make us better, to make us feel better, to fill us up. We're still searching just like they were in the first century. And the problem today is the same as it was then. We're looking in all the wrong places. I know I was. I know you were too. And if you're here for the first time, I know you still are. You're looking in the wrong place. The answer to the shepherds was to go to Bethlehem and look in a manger of all places. Look in a feeding trough for animals, for a baby. That's where you're going to find the peace that you're looking for. That's where you're going to find what makes you better. Today, we can still figuratively look in the manger. What's the manger for us today? Well, it's, it's right here. It's in church. Not this building, but in this community. This is a group of people that have found something better. Not, not in, our, in and of ourselves, but because we found the person who makes us better. Jesus Christ. He makes us better. He makes us the best version of ourselves. Yes, we're going to have to get rid of some things. Yes, we're going to have to you're going to have to let go of things that you like. And I know in our modern thinking that doesn't equate with feeling good or being better. I mean, how can we be restricted? If we restrict ourselves of anything, aren't we limiting ourselves from any possible joy? And that's how our world thinks, doesn't it? But let me, let me give you an example of, of why that thinking doesn't work. I was watching a show, uh, an interview of Michael Phelps. And I'm not commenting on anything, Michael Phelps. I just want you to hear something he said in the show. He was uh, shooting to win the gold medals in every event. He actually wanted to do that. He, that was his mind. I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to win every gold medal I can, every event I, I'm, I'm entered in in the next Olympics. I think that was the 2012 when he won the eight gold medals. Oh, eight, when he won the eight gold medals, whatever year it was. And he, and he said that what he did was he practiced every day. And the guy said, oh, you mean like on Sunday? He goes, Sunday. It was normal for all world-class athletes to practice, you know, six days a week and take a day of rest. But he decided to practice every day, including Thanksgiving, including Thanksgiving, including Christmas. Yeah, I got up at four. I practiced. Then I went home and opened presents. He practiced every day. And his comment was, I had 52 more days of practice a year than anyone else of my competitors did. Now, in order to have that kind of a commitment to his sport, he had to limit himself from other things, did he not? He had to say no to other pleasures like a day off. But it made him better. You see, the truth is about human nature, if we have no boundaries we become miserable. Ask any parent who struggles to discipline their children. They're miserable. 
They need boundaries. And so do you and I as adults. We need boundaries, limits to our freedom, because that's the only way we can become better. And so, yes, if you want to become a Christian because it offers you something better, if you want to do what the the shepherds did and go find Jesus, the person who makes you better, yes, he's going to ask you to limit yourself in some ways. And yes, you could think, well, that's going to be miserable and I'm going to be unhappy. No, you're going to be better. You're actually miserable and unhappy right now. Because you have no limits or boundaries that makes you better. So let's just do away, brothers and sisters, with this thinking. And if you're visiting that, you know, Somehow, if everything, I just get whatever I want, I'm somehow going to be happy. That is not true. It is a lie. And it is ingrained in our culture. It's so ingrained we don't even talk about it. We just assume it to be true. And we find ourselves saying things like that. I'm just free to be who I want to be. Miserable? Okay. That's what you'll be. And so, yes, they found something better. It was a baby in a manger. For us, you know, who who grew up to become Jesus Christ, and it's the same for us. Jesus Christ is going to be the one who makes us better. That's who we got to look for. That's where we got to start putting our attention. And maybe in 2016, that's that's something you can do. Maybe you don't want to do the thank God every night. Fine, but make a decision to look for Christ in 2016. And if you, if you feel like you found him, then make a decision to get to know him better. If you don't know him at all, make a decision to get to know him. It'll make you better. Verse 15. So they hurried off. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So the shepherds, after this light and the, the angels and the whole thing happens, they, as soon as they recover their, their you know, legs... They hurry off into Bethlehem, and I can just picture them running down the streets, you know, looking not in the, not in the bedrooms and not in the, 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 hot, the, the hotel rooms, but in the manger. They're looking in the stables. I don't know if anybody, you know, looked at them, get out of here, trying to steal my sheep. I don't know. But they ran around, and, that, and then they finally found the one baby in a manger in the city. And they were so excited, and they were so thrilled that finding him wasn't enough, it tells us that they went out and they told everybody what had happened to them. They had to do it. They had to tell others. And here's the interesting and awesome thing. When they did, when they told people, this is what happened, the angels, the light, the baby, when they went around and told that story, people were amazed. People listened. They didn't get the usual dismissal oh, you're a shepherd, I I don't trust you. You can't even testify in court. They didn't get the usual response. They got a response of amazement. How did that happen? 
because there was something different about them. From the time that they saw the angel and the hosts and they were told to go to Bethlehem and then they ran in there and they found the baby Jesus in the manger, somewhere in that time frame, they were different. They were changed. So much so that when they went around and spread the word, people were amazed. People didn't blow them off or dismiss them. They were amazed. That's how powerful the change was. In a world that is looking for something better, the shepherds provided the hope that, some, that you could get better. It wasn't just their testimony, it was the change in them. The testimony and the change is what got people listening. And this is the gift of the shepherds. They gave hope. They gave hope to everyone that they talked to that they could be better, that they could be different, that it wasn't going to be the same old story played out, that the same old bad things that were, came down generation to generation didn't have to continue in their life. They brought hope. And you know, you and I do the same thing. Every time we talk to someone about our faith in Jesus Christ and we back it up with our change, with the betterness that we are. Is that a word? The, the better person that we are. Every time you and I open our mouths and we, we talk about Christ and, 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 and it comes from a place of real of real difference in our lives. It gives hope to the person you're talking to. I know it did for me. When I first came to the church and I first got into a Bible study, I was studying the Bible. I was in college and I was working. I had no time. And the only time I could study was at like midnight. And I would go to this household of guys that were brothers and I would show up at midnight and no one was drunk and no one was high and there weren't women all over the place and no one was cursing and no one was, you know, doing any kind of dirty dealing on the side, but they would wait for me and they would study the Bible with me. And just being in that environment gave me hope because it was clear that these people were different. So it was their testimony, but it was also the difference in their life that communicated to me hope. If you're a, a Christian or you call yourself a Christian, God forbid that you don't show it in a changed life. How dare you? And if that's not been you in 2015, then repent and make it you in 2016. Remember, God can make great things out of it. It's never too late. But if you try to fake it, shame on you. But God bless you if it's real. And when you give it to someone else, when you share with someone else and it comes from a, an authentic place in you, it's real, it's historical fact in your life, then you're a bearer of hope. 
like the shepherds were bearers of hope to the people that they talked to. So this is their gift, and this is our gift. And let's be these kind of people in 2016. It's not a political slogan. It's a solution to a problem. The fact is, every one of us, we're a lot like the shepherds. We're unreliable. We're untrustworthy. In our human condition, that's just who we are. If you think you're not, then you're worse off. But God has given us a message. He's given us a call. He's provided everything we need for a changed life. And he wants us to share that with everyone around us. And he did it by bringing his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Who would eventually grow up, do all the amazing things he did, and then die on a cross and deal with our human condition our human sinfulness. And that's why he came. He came to atone for our sin. That's what makes us better. That's what makes us different. And that's what brings the the authenticity to our testimony. So let's be the people who give hope to the people around us in 2016. My uh, favorite part of the movie Miss Congeniality was at the end. I think it's funny. You may not, but I think it's funny. Sandra Bullock, who was always mocking all the girls the whole show and making fun of them, especially when they would, you know, they would be asked tough questions and they'd always go, I want world peace. Like that was the joke throughout the movie. You know, I want world peace. I want world peace. And anyways, Sandra Bullock was always mocking them. At the end of the show, she doesn't win but they catch the bad guy and all that. And she ends up becoming friends with many of the girls in the contest. And so they have a little banquet, an after contest banquet, and they have an award for like best uh, contestant, you know, not, not the winner of the beauty pageant, but just among the girls who was the best contestant, right? Or the, the, the person everybody liked the most or whatever. And Sandra Bullock wins it. And she gets up there and she's like, well, you know, thank you. And she's doing her speech. And at the end she goes, and I really do want world peace. <laughs> and I love that ending. It just cracks me up. Because people really are looking for solutions. They're looking for answers. They want something better. And it's only going to be found in Jesus Christ. At this time, we're going to take communion. It's a time to remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus. 